Radio Mano Papachango. Chris, what's up? This is River from Ohio. I uh, am in the Barcelona airport, currently trying to flee before the borders close, going back to my place of residency in Hamburg, Germany. Your podcast is keeping me entertained and um, at ease while I am in the belly of the beast as the panic ensues. Thanks, buddy. Thank you, River. Hope everybody's doing okay out there. What a fucking mess, huh? Crazy times, crazy times. Um, I was thinking, I think it was the last episode I I, uh, repeated the uh, African saying that the best place to keep extra food is in your friend's stomach. I was thinking of another African saying, Uh, that I heard somewhere or read somewhere. Maybe it's not even Africa. I don't know, but it's one of these hunter-gatherer type sayings that uh, if there's enough for one, there's enough for two. And if there's enough for two, there's enough for three. And if there's enough for three, well, you see where this is going, right? Um, I remember reading, and I think it was one of uh, Darwin's notebooks that he kept when he was cruising around... um, the tip of South America and, and uh, interacting with native people there. He was very frustrated, amused and frustrated as a you know 19th century British scientist would be by native people. Uh, he was commenting on their insistence on sharing. And um, he was he was sort of um, dismissive of them because he was saying as long as they insist on sharing everything, you know there'll never be, a leader who can rise up and lead them into a more civilized life. Never having occurred to him, of course, that this isn't a failure. It may be exactly what they wanted, you know. Uh, He even had two people on the ship with him who came from Tierra del Fuego, were kidnapped by the captain uh, Fitzroy of that ship on a previous voyage, brought to England, introduced to the king and queen, shown all the beautiful, wonderful things about British life, and on the voyage of the Beagle that Darwin was on, they were being taken back to their people in Tierra del Fuego, the idea being that they were going to tell their people how amazing and wonderful and superior the British way of life was and that we should all just join them and go to church and praise their God and you know eat their shitty-ass food and do everything else because they're so much better. Uh, of course, what happened was Jemmy and uh, Jemmy Button and um, uh, I forget the woman's name. There's a, a woman. There were three of them uh, taken. Actually, th- I think all three of them were, were brought back. They all survived. Um, but one was an adult and two were younger. Um, in any case, you can read about this in Civilized to Death and also in Sex at Dawn. I told the same story twice. They abandoned their gardens, abandoned the house, and went back to live the way they they had um, because they thought that the British way of life was just a waste of time. And anyway, back to the original story, Darwin is writing in his 
journal about how these people refuse to uh, allow any sort of inequality and uh, so they'll never rise up to a civilized way of life because they insist on sharing everything. And, and he said, I one day I gave a cigarette to one of them and he insisted on breaking it into little pieces and giving a piece to each of his comrades. Now, of course, Darwin saw this metaphor. It makes sense. Like, how can you smoke a cigarette if you're going to break it into all these tiny little pieces, right? Nobody gets to smoke anything. And as a capitalist, a British colonialist, he looked at that and said, see, that's what's wrong with your way of life. You people don't allow anyone to accumulate enough resources to build a factory and, you know, control the means of production and so on and so forth. And, and, uh, lead you into an industrialized way of life. Now, of course, from the natives' perspective, they're saying, if we don't share, we die. If we don't distribute risk and resources in the way that we always have, we don't survive. And in fact, we survive quite nicely this way. We like the way we live. We like the way we interact with each other. There's another anecdote that I... Uh, recounted in Sex at Dawn, not in Civilized to Death, I don't think, I'm not sure. Uh, but it was in the 1600s, some native people from uh, Brazil were brought back to France and they were, you know, taken around and shown the way of life in France. And uh, they met with some people in Montaigne, the famous French essayist, um, memoirist, I guess is the term, uh, was there. And he recounted that someone asked them what was most striking to them about the European way of life. And they said that it was amazing to them that there were people who were who had accumulated so much wealth that they lived behind walls and palaces. And yet most of the people were starving and lay at their doorways dying. And yet the people who were starving didn't rise up and burn down the palaces. They couldn't understand that. How do you put up with this? How do you accept these conditions in which a few are living in palaces and the rest of us are fighting over scraps? If there's enough for one, there's enough for two. And if there's enough for two, there's enough for three. And if there's enough for three, fuck this stuff. Fuck this way of life. It's not helping any of us. That's the problem. There's a section in Civilized to Death about rich asshole syndrome where I recount and I go through the literature, the, the scientific research on happiness and, and a meaningful, fulfilling life. And the correlation between wealth and life satisfaction is extremely weak and only up to a certain point, up to somewhere around $80,000 per year. Um, in the United States economy. Uh, in other words, up to the point where you're not worried that you're going to have something to eat tomorrow, where you're not worried that you can afford a dentist if your tooth starts hurting. You're not worried that your kid's going to die if they get sick, that you'll be able to afford medication and you'll have a, a roof over your head and you'll have a vehicle and the basic necessities of life are covered. Once you get past that point, there's not really much correlation between wealth and happiness. And so Jeff Bezos is not a billion times happier than you and me. 
Jeff Bezos is probably not twice as happy as you and me. Jeff Bezos probably is not as happy as I am. And I hope as you are. So what's the fucking point? Jeff Bezos is probably miserable. Fucking Mark Zuckerberg? Jesus, look at that dude. If that's not a miserable motherfucker, I've never seen one. So if they're not winning, if they're not, if their lives are not just fan-fucking-tastic, then what's the point of all that money? What it does is it distorts their lives it makes it impossible for them to trust people who, who would otherwise be friends. It makes relationships fraught with danger, with distrust, with suspicion. It puts them under incredible amounts of pressure. And it creates the kind of social isolation that the rest of us are being called upon to observe now. Anyway, I think I've ranted about all this before. But my point is that we don't need to live this way. We don't need to suffer like this. We don't need to have tens of thousands of people sleeping in the streets on any given night. We don't need to have kids right now who aren't going to eat because they don't go to school in the United States, which is the only source of decent food that they have because their parents or their mother can't afford food or they live in a in a nutritional desert where the only source of food is a fucking 711 there're no fresh vegetables anywhere we don't need to live like this all right this episode is with a guy named Eli who does some extremely interesting meaningful work he takes kids uh, I think between 15 or between two different groups, one like under 15, 12 to 15, I think, and the other 15 to 19 years old. Um, he and his buddy is like a high school buddy. I think he said, um, take groups of boys into the wilderness and uh, they get real. They talk about masculinity. They talk about reality, truth, identity, gender, whatever. They sit around the fire and they get real. And they teach these kids survival skills, how to build fires, how to build shelters, how to take care of themselves. And if you've ever done this kind of thing, either as a kid or as a counselor, um, you know that there's something about being out in the natural world that strips pretension away. Um, there's something about having a conversation by a fire that nurtures truth. It's hard to lie sitting by a campfire because there's a sense of safety and comfort, I think, that resonates right down to our DNA, literally, because we've been sitting, our ancestors have been sitting by fires in the woods with stars overhead and animals in the underbrush and maybe the smell of meat cooking or tubers in the coals. We've been in that environment for hundreds and thousands of generations. There's a reason that feels so good to us. There's a reason a hammock feels so good. Our ancestors were in hammocks, swinging in hammocks between two trees, all the way back to the origins of Homo sapiens. I, would, I argue before the origins of Homo sapiens because... Chimpanzees and bonobos 
our two closest primate relatives with whom we shared a common ancestor five to six million years ago, they weave branches together up in the trees each night and sleep on that sort of woven mat of living branches, which is what? It's a fucking hammock. And each night they weave a new one uh, as they move through the treetops. And as the, you know, the breeze moves the trees, they move in the hammock. They, they, our species from the origin, from before the dawn of humanity, literally have been lying in hammocks at night, looking up at the stars. So there's a reason these things feel so familiar and uh, nurturing to us. Um, and, and it's the same with fires. It's the same. Nature just resonates that way. So taking kids out there, kids who might not have access to it, might, might be afraid of the natural world because we're all taught to be afraid of it. We're all taught that there are rattlesnakes under every rock and there are bears behind every tree and there are mountain lions that are going to jump on, you know. It's like if you look at any sort of statistical analysis, right? Like how many people have been killed by wolves in North America since colonial times, since the 1700s? I think it's like, you know, under 20. It's minuscule. I forget the. I don't know what the exact number is, but I've read it over the years. It's a, a dozen, two dozen, whatever. I'm talking since the beginning of America, right? When there were wolves all over the place and there are, you know, mountain men and people like way out in the middle of nowhere. Nobody gets killed by wolves, but we're terrified of it. My buddy, Kyle Tierman, big wave surfer sponsored by Patagonia. You know him, you've met him. He has a great podcast. He, he spent more time in the ocean than anybody I've ever met. And he told me he's never seen a shark. Never. Right. I, these things are so overblown. It's so the fear of the natural world is so amplified. And yet car accidents, we don't think about them. We drive by them all the time. Right. Drive by a wrecked car, drive by. You see the skid marks on the highways. You see the, the, the pieces of cars that have, you know, been cleaned up, but they, they left the bumper or they left some shards of glass or plastic. We just drive by and forget, forget about it. Heart disease, diabetes, stroke, all these things that don't affect hunter-gatherers, don't affect, didn't affect our ancestors. Fucking coronavirus wasn't a problem. Pandemics epidemics weren't a problem for hunter-gatherers. Why? Because they didn't live so close to each other. They lived in isolated bands. Very little contact between the bands. Maybe annual, you know, a springtime festival with some, when some of the bands would come together and people would, you know, leave one band, go to another band to keep the genetic thing happening. Uh, you know, sexual attraction. You're not generally attracted to people you grew up with. Uh, so, yeah. A couple, yeah, once or twice a year, but generally dispersed, very low population density, not good conditions for a pandemic. In fact, uh, impossible conditions. So these things and this thing that we're facing right now, these these didn't face our ancestors didn't deal with any of this shit. Think about that next time somebody tells you, "Oh my God, it was so dangerous. Everybody died at thirty. Ah, it fucking kills me." Um. Anyway, another thing uh, that resonates with us 
is ceramics. You think about ceramics as one of the first human inventions. It was probably invented by accident. I love ceramics. I love like a, a well-made ceramic coffee cup or plates. And the reason I'm mentioning this is that I've gotten to know a guy named Jason in the last uh, couple of weeks. He is up here on the Mendocino coast and um, he is a potter, I guess, or a ceramicist. I'm not sure what the correct term is, but he does really beautiful work. I, I met him because he sent me some cups. He listens to the podcast. What's up, Jason? Hope this isn't too weird for you. Um, he sent me a couple of cups and they became my absolute favorite cups in Topanga. I stopped using all my other cups every day, use the same cups, you know, for uh, coffee or tea or whatever, whatever I was having. Uh, they're just beautiful. They're beautiful. They feel right. The balance is right. The, the size of the loop to put your fingers through is right. There's like a pad on the top to put your thumb, just fit your hands so nicely. And they're beautiful. And uh, anyway, a couple of weeks ago, I was in the area and I drove out and uh, had lunch with Jason and he took me and showed me around his um, his shop and his kiln and, and showed me the clay that he uses. And we talked about, uh, you know, this this art of using fire and um, elements from the earth to create these incredible pieces. And, uh, you know, I told him I'd bought this land uh, which I think I've mentioned to you. I'm not talking about it in any detail yet, but I will be getting to that pretty soon. Um, but I bought this land and I'm heading out there and I'm going to build a small house and sort of, you know, set up a, a life out there in the sticks. And he gave me a box of dinner plates that he had made. And um, it's, I don't have a house, but I have a housewarming gift. So it's, they're fucking beautiful. I couldn't afford to buy them. Um, if I wanted to, uh, his stuff is, it's art that's useful. Um, and, uh, anyway, I just wanted to thank him publicly and send you to his Instagram page. If you want to check out his stuff, it's Sani, S-A-N-N-Y ceramics, Sani ceramics. And there's a webpage, Sani ceramics.com. You can see some of the pieces and, um, you know, if you want to get some cups or plates, if you have some cash and you, you like this kind of thing, uh, man, he's the best. He does really interesting work, just beautiful designs and finishes and just everything's so cool. Um, anyway, thank you, Jason. I guess I'm probably going to leave it at that. Uh, there's always more things to talk about, but I feel like what I might do, I know I tend to make a lot of, uh, announcements that I don't necessarily follow through on, or at least not, uh, in, you know, a reasonable time frame. but I've been thinking people are shut up at home. Um, you know, while we go through this thing, who knows how long this is going to take. Um, and I might start producing more content. Of course, my life is, is chaotic as hell. I, you know, this whole like stay at home, like a home. I don't have a home. Uh, I gave up my apartment in Topanga a few months ago. Uh, so I'm basically in the van now and, um, yeah. So if I, if I hit a roadblock, I'm going to have a lot of explaining to do, but in any case, I was thinking uh, if circumstances allow, I will start to produce more content 
And um, that way I don't need to ramble on as long at the beginning of each of these. I can save some stuff for the next one. Some of the ideas I had, I've talked on here about doing a Sex at Dawn book read by me because the first one was read by actors and that contract is expiring in a couple of months here. I was thinking maybe instead of doing um, like a regular audio book, I might do a podcast, like a series where, you know, let's say once a week I read uh, Sex at Dawn and talk about whatever new research I've come across or what I was thinking when I wrote this passage or why I chose this metaphor over another, whatever comes up in my mind. So sort of um, an annotated reading of Sex at Dawn and make it serialized. So like I said, each week, maybe an hour. Um, and so let me know what you think about that. Uh, if you're on Reddit, there's a tangentially speaking Reddit community. I'd love to hear your thoughts on there, or you can, um, write to me, uh, directly through the website, uh, that Chris or tangentially speaking.com. Um, and also if you want to send me intros, uh, these audio intros, what you're doing, where you are, uh, what you're going through, uh, I'd love to play some of those. That's uh, intro at tangentiallyspeaking.com. So I was thinking of doing that, and um, I don't know if there's interest. I don't know if I should do it as a separate podcast with a separate feed or if I should sort of fold it into this podcast the way I do with the Tomas and the Romas and all that, or if that be- is, is that becoming too cluttered. I, I don't know. I don't know how to do these things. I'm making it up as I go along, folks. I guess that's obvious by now to anybody who's been listening for a while. Uh, All right. I am going to play you out now with a tune that a listener sent me. Uh, Let me pull up his email. Yeah, Bobby Weedman. I think it's pronounced Weedman. It's W-E-I-D-M-A-N. And uh, he sent in... Uh, some music that he's just put together. The album is called Thousand Island Sun. And the song I'm going to play is Key West Run. And uh, he's got a YouTube channel that you can check out. It's, uh, I guess the best way, it's you know, it's a bunch of gibberish, the link. So just search Bobby Weedman on Instagram and you'll see videos uh, for some of his songs, some of his covers. And uh, he's just, he's a dude who plays in bars and he's said he's been playing in bars, doing covers, you know, throughout his 20s. He looks like he's in his late 20s now. Uh, and um, yeah, he's got some original tunes that are really good. I, I really enjoy this one. So this is Key West Run, Bobby Weedman. Check him out on YouTube. I'll also uh, I'll post the link, of course, on my webpage, as I always do. Uh, you probably, whatever app you're using, hopefully we'll have the link on there as well if you want to check out his music. Put some money in his tip jar if he has one or send him a PayPal or buy a record. if he. I don't know what he, if he's even printed CDs, but he'd be happy to hear from you, I'm sure. All right, thank you for listening. Uh, wishing you... Lots of support, and um, yeah, I hope things are are going all right for you, and you're staying safe. Love you all. Bye.
wipe the sweat from my brow Under the thousand island sun And in those cane fields, Lord, it beat down And a poor boy's work is never done Breaking my back in my old man's house Taking each harvest as it comes Schooner for the Key West Drive. 
right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm in Santa Rosa, California with Eli Marienthal. Did I say that right? You did. I mean, you just said it 30 seconds ago. You nailed it. <laughs> my my 15-second memory is great. I don't know about the rest of it, but uh, thanks for doing this. Thanks for coming down from uh, Grass Valley. Mm-hmm. Tell me about Grass Valley. Why is it called Gra- Was it called Grass Valley before people were growing weed there? It must have been. <laughs> it must have been. I uh, I don't know why it's called Grass Valley. It's in Nevada County, and uh, Nevada County is kind of shaped like a gun pointed at the state of Nevada, which I hear is intentional. Really? It uh, Nevada County was founded in 1851. Call it Gold Country, and it is like original kind of ground zero and a place that still bears the marks of um, past and present gold mining. That's right. Really? There's still small-scale gold mining. I actually uh, went out and visited this this 93-year-old buddy of mine, uh, invited me up to his piece of land because we were going to mill some wood, and I got up there, and, uh, man, I just couldn't believe it. It was like a crazy wasteland scene of just like huge motors and crazy earth moving equipment lester what are you doing up here oh i'm just you know mining for gold he was a he was a jeweler and uh in his 60s retired and moved out there and he's just like out there you know i mean digging up shit digging shit up oh and his name's lester lester bracken yeah god bless you les (laughs) Is he listening to podcasts? I don't know. I don't think so. He probably doesn't even know what a podcast is. Yeah, but. yeah. I, I like people who don't know what podcasts are. They often are the most interesting. I've had I, that would be an interesting thing to go back in the compilation of of guests I've had on who had no idea what a podcast was. Well, probably a much higher proportion when you started doing it. Yeah. Well, there's that. Yeah, uh, of the word spreading, but there's also just the like the eccentrics who aren't plugged in you know you just stick a microphone in front of them they're like can't imagine the way that it takes shape as a a thing in the world yeah i I got i had a buddy like that i mean still you know man's like he he finally conceded to a flip phone like a couple years ago we didn't have an email address uh you know I, i said something to him about a cool podcast and he's like uh I mean, he didn't have a concept of even where one would listen to such a thing. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. but but in a time of crisis, like, that man knows where you're going to go to, like, harvest the OSHA, and he, like, knows the place where you get the water right out of the ground. Yeah. So, you know, it's yeah. like people know what they know. Yeah, exactly. And that, it's interesting how knowledge, the value of knowledge ebbs and flows of certain kinds of knowledge right so we're talking i'm going to release this i think right away because the other ones that i have are evergreen you know and we're talking about what's happening in the world right now and it's changing by the minute so uh i think it makes sense to release this right away we've been talking about what's happening where this is uh what day is today saturday saturday march 14th 14th Julius Caesar, William Shakespeare, uh, beware the Ides of March. It was prophecy that that Caesar would be killed in mid-March, and he was warned by a soothsayer. Mm. I don't know what sooth is, but I guess it's good to say it. If you've got some sooth, go ahead and say it. Uh, And I always remember that line, beware the Ides of March. And here we are, the Ides of March means the middle of March. 
And here we are, and uh, the world appears to be in some kind of meltdown. Appears. Appears. Well, yeah. I mean, we're all dependent on uh, sources of information, which now are, you know, many of us don't trust them as much as we used to. But I think it's pretty clear that um, this virus is very serious. You know, it's I always follow the the edict to follow the money, right? Mm. Like people tell you all sorts of shit, but watch what they do with their money. Mm. When the NBA cancels the rest of the season, that's a lot of money, right? Um, of course, Wall Street overreacts to things, but Wall Street's been crashing for a week now. Uh, international global travel's being shut down. Like these are not things, these are not decisions that people make lightly. So I think it's pretty clear that there's some serious shit happening. Um, anyway, the the reason I one of the reasons I mention it is that uh, one of the things I wanted to discuss with you was the work you do with kids, um, and how a lot of the knowledge that you're imparting and to these kids is the sort of knowledge that may be becoming very valuable here. My goodness. Yeah, we may find ourselves making fire with friction, uh, you know, from more than educational experiments <laughs> exactly. sometime soon. Exactly. So tell me about that work and, you know, what's the organization called? How'd you get into it? The organization is called Back to Earth. And uh, it's something I run with my, my best friend from high school. And we are a wilderness guiding and outdoor education company. We do uh, all kinds of programming for schools, nature connection, culture building programs. And maybe we circle back because in in some ways I actually think the culture building um, is just as if not more important than the sort of nature connection and the hard skills in in the times to come. Um, But the the core of our work and the thing we've been doing the longest and the thing we're, we're best known for are wilderness backpacking trips with teenage boys. We go out for 10 days at a time. We learn a whole mess of real practical skills. How many kids in a group? About 10. And when you say teenage, what age are you? 15 to 19 generally. Okay, so Uh, older, older teenagers. Yeah, we do a trip for 13 and 14 year olds as well. Mm. And uh, sometimes we have guys who come back two, three, four years, and by then they're into their early 20s. Mm. By that time, usually those guys start to come on and train with us as assistant instructors. And right. uh, this summer, if we still have a, a season, if there's still Yosemite National Park, uh, have a couple of those guys actually guiding with us. And how long have you been doing this? This is going to be my sixth year. Right. And you and your buddy founded it? We inherited the shell of an existing organization that had not been doing much but gave us a website domain and an insurance run a no loss insurance run which is nothing to sneer at in this line of work what's that mean no loss insurance it just means that there was a history of this entity being insured over many years Uh, without making a claim i see and so we kind of inherited that and uh, and these guys who had been running it then opened a restaurant, catering, got into other things. You know, they they made us sign a one page. In retrospect, it's kind of incredible and so generous of them. They made us sign this one page thing that said, 
you know, we won't sue you and we won't pay ourselves more than we make. So, okay. And otherwise they kind of gave us the keys to this entity. Hmm. And, uh, so back to earth was, was something of their creation that we picked up and ran like that for a few years and then ended up buying them out. And, uh, and so it's, it's fully ours now. And, uh, yeah, we, we kind of fell into the work. Um, six years ago, my friend was managing a farm in Mendocino, and I was in a PhD program in geography at Berkeley. And uh, all in a matter of a few months, we both found ourselves um, kind of in the mystery about what to do next and uh, decided to, to pick this up and put it out there, see if anybody was interested and we've been doing it ever since what was the call to you i heard you you i should mention that you did a podcast with anya Kotz, the millennials guide to saving the world you're a millennial i guess i squarely so squarely millennial uh positioned um what what uh i know you you mentioned to her that you weren't raised in a family where you spent a lot of time in the woods so how did this call out to you what was the connection well when i was 16 and 17 jesse and i started backpacking together and i i mean if you just look at a map of california and you look at how much of it is wilderness And you imagine that there is one orientation to life in which that all looks like a no-go zone. Hmm. And there's another orientation in which it's all in bounds. Hmm. And that's what happened when I was 16. I just started to look at the world, look at the map in a different way. Instead of it just that being the blank spot where you don't go, it was like, man, we could get in there. And then, you know, we'd go out there and we were, you know, whatever, we were 16, we were out there doing whatever 16 year olds are doing out there you know exploring the the cosmoverse you know (laughs) oh the cosmoverse and uh you know but but doing it in this way where where we could just really have a a sense of our own freedom yeah our own sovereignty our own autonomy self-reliance self-reliance take care of yourself yeah and uh and it was pretty euphoric Mm. it was pretty euphoric you know it it really blew the lid off and and it gave us the experience of having friendships that were based on um on a real spirit of adventure yeah you know it was like we had a friendship that that wasn't first of all was completely unsupervised deeply dependent on each other really looking out for each other and that um found its groove and like man how far can we push that can we get on top of that what if we just walk over and drop down into that other drainage like oh we got a map and and it was the experience i remember it's like when we started really getting off the trails and you could just look at a map like all right that saddle, that looks passable. I think we can drop over into that drainage, follow that creek down, wind around, and that's the experience of being an animal on the earth. Yeah. And it's a it's a singular thing, you know, when you're a human being and and it's you know, you grow up saying, I'm an animal because I'm a human being, blah, blah, blah. But then you really feel it. You're like, Oh, I I am. I'm actually an unearthed creature. Your body, right? Like oh, yeah. can my body carry me up over that down the other side and get me back around? That's a really interesting feeling, especially for 
a young, I was going to say a young man, but I think it's the same for young women. Um, and unfortunately, they don't have as, they're not encouraged to test themselves in that same way. But mm-hmm. I imagine the satisfaction must be the same. Definitely. And the, and the mental training of it, you know, I'm 34 and, uh, you know, I got torn meniscus in both of my knees. And I, I go out there sometimes with these guys, they're like 17, 18 track stars, you know, and I just beast on them on the trail, you know, it's like, they just, they just can't keep up. They're so much stronger than me. You know, they could run so much faster than me. And I said, do you know why? Cause I know that I can take one more step forever. Hmm. Now, I, I just, I know that about myself that I do that one step. You take one more. Yeah. And take one more, take one more, you know, and that's what I learned out there. It's like, same thing for getting up and over a mountain. You just like one more step. Yep. I got one more in me. I got one more in me. You know, I'm not thinking about, man, how long we've been walking. When's our next break? When mm. do we get to camp? You know? So, so that, it's, that's it's that mental. mental game. Yeah. Yeah. Do you ever have any heavy shit go down when you're out there with your friend? Like one of you got hurt, you had to get help, you had to spend the night you weren't planning to, you didn't have a tent, stuff like that? We, um, you know, we've, we've been both safe and lucky. We've been both safe and lucky. And uh, I have not had any critical emergencies in the backcountry. Um, you know, last summer, I had the scariest encounter of my life. I was sitting on the bank, and there were some kids swimming out in the lake, and they'd swum out to a little island. And, you know, we're in this funny, we're in this funny boat because a lot of programs like ours are so... Um, you know, risk averse. On the one hand, it seems like an oxymoron. You go out into the wilderness and be risk averse, but because it's such a risky affair, you know, they say, oh, don't jump off that. You know, don't go in there. Don't swim there. Never be alone. You know, and and because so much of my, my experience and the reason that I do this work is to give them the sense of freedom right. and personal accountability. So I really try to trust them quite a lot. And so, you know, they're swimming and I'm watching. I got... You know, this kid, and he's out there swimming, you know, big boy, and uh, call out to him because he's kind of lagging behind the group. It's like, hey, Tristan, you know, bro, how you doing? You okay? No. Uh-oh. And, um, man, I, I was in that water and holding his head up and, you know, kicking, and I, I did not even realize what was happening in my in my body because the adrenaline was pumping so hard and uh you know managed to just keep his face out of the water and get him back and then was was just toast Mm. for like a day you know couldn't just couldn't even move i just um exerted myself beyond what my body could actually do to get out there that fast training like lifeguard training i do not Uh. i do not i um we are amending (laughs) <laughs> our swimming policy you know but that's that's how yeah. you that's how you learn yeah it's like um we uh you know we're, we're we're always adjusting in response to the real life situation and uh i just remember when i did my you know wilderness my early wilderness training i did uh 30 
days in the Wind River range in Wyoming, mountaineering, and got back and realized I'd never been alone. Mm. You know, I'd spent that whole time out in those mountains. I'd never sat alone because it was part of the risk management protocol to like not be well, alone. Was this Knowles? Yeah. Oh, you did the Knowles course, National Outdoor Leadership School. Yeah, and they are, I mean, exceptional at what they do. Yeah. You know, the the technical competencies, the um, ability to navigate the wilderness safely. I learned so much from them, and um, and yet by the time I I got back and I you know realized that so much of what I'd learned there was to encounter nature as kind of a, a hostile force. Mm. I mean, I'm sure someone from Knowles will hear this and say, that's not at all what we teach, but that's, that's kind of how it felt. Like the elements are dangerous. The world is dangerous. The animals are dangerous. Um, you know, the weather is dangerous, all of which is, is true to an extent. And, um, but it, it inculcates a kind of, um, a certain kind of fear-based relationship. So you, you travel on top of it, and inherently, I think you start to think about it as conquering it. Yeah. And so that's the part where um, I see what we're doing is really different. It's like mm. we do not talk about. It. It's like you don't conquer a mountain. I mean, that's, a, that's an absurd thought. You yeah. know, it's like getting on top of a mountain and you conquered it. Yeah. It's like it's a mountain. Like, yeah. what do you? <laughs> whatever do you mean yeah yeah but you hear that language sure you know and yeah. i i we get guys who come out and that's kind of their that's that's their initial mode that's the that's the predominant kind of cultural view of it to like conquer the the great outdoors and conquer the wilderness and you know overcome it mm. and uh you know i just i just always want to remind them it's like by the grace of all that is here you know we are tenuously existing on it yeah you know we're we're we got a, a, a thin and sometimes pretty flimsy little foothold on it and so if you haven't fallen off it yet you know just say thank you yeah yeah <laughs> and also what what is it that you're really trying to conquer right yeah that that domination mentality uh toward nature which is replicated in relationship to women i think you know conquer a woman get on top of her and conquer her right mm -hmm. she lost her virginity i mm -hmm. took her virginity mm -hmm. what the fuck are we talking about here it's so interesting that you mentioned that you know because i've actually been um you know when you when you do work with young men there's often this conversation that comes up around around masculinity and what do you what do you want to teach young guys and I'm actually increasingly interested in having like real conversations about sex with the young guys that I, I work with. And it's been kind of sending me into my own memory bank mm -hmm. in an interesting way, just recalling being 15, 16, 17 myself and, and really trying to, trying to reach them where they're at, not even to impart anything, but just to be able when we have an open conversation to kind of be on their level. And I've been wondering why I never thought about losing my virginity. <laughs> yeah. Why it wasn't like that at all. You know, it was yeah. like, it wasn't even part of my, of my paradigm. Certainly not as something precious. I mean, if anything, something that I was like desperate to right. ditch. <laughs> you know, it's like, exactly. get this fucking thing off of me. <laughs> like, like, 
go you know yeah. be with my friends yeah like a, like a cool guy right you know? yeah, man yeah she made that's the other one like you know she made him into a man like what that that's what it is getting your dick wet is what makes you a man jesus yeah well i think it, it's so important to uh for those you know guys that age to have a realm in which they can talk openly and and hear from someone a little older than them and feel safe because uh, i mean let's face it that's probably 80 percent of their mental space is around sex at that age i was i was doing a, a retreat with a bunch of young guys and um it was like 30 of us in a circle and kind of opening question one of our circles like so you know what's something you're afraid of or that you feel insecure about and we go around the room and everybody says the thing you know well i just feel like everybody knows what they're doing with their life you know and i don't or i, I feel uncomfortable because i'm kind of dyslexic and we get to the end and i say to them you know guys it just it strikes me and there's like 35 of us in this room and no one mentioned sex you know, it's like, as you say, it's like, it's 80% of what most of us are, are certainly what we're most insecure about, most afraid of, like, the thing that actually terrifies us at our core most is like, the, um, you know, the complex feelings, especially at that age of um, fear, shame, and confusion that get wrapped up in the very distorted ways that male sexuality gets expressed in this culture. Yeah. And, you know, it's just like, but it was just could not make it. And it wasn't even like anybody was suppressing it. Mm. It wasn't even, I didn't get the sense that anybody like thought it and then chose to say the safe thing. Right. It was like until you popped and then boom, it's like three, four hours. We're just talking. Cool. You know? So what, what came out? Well, what comes out um, as a theme when, when really let guys talk is something about, the ways that they do things, first of all, and this this is probably not so unexpected, but the ways that their behavior is motivated so much more by their own social dynamics with each other mm. than by their authentic desire. Mm. Right. And, um, and in particular, the ways they hold their own sexuality, um, you know, that same sense of like, oh, my virginity is something shameful to ditch, not something precious. And then especially, I think, in this moment where there is, for really good reasons, I'm a huge supporter of, you know, having conversations about consent and having conversations that are really like training young men about what um, what it means to be like looking out for the for the other people that they're engaging with and for themselves. And yet. I think it has really inculcated a sense of their own sexuality as something dangerous. Yeah. You know, this feeling of like, oh, I am just like uh, beholden to these drives that might at any moment, uh, even if I don't want them to like erupt and then I'm going to do something and I'm going to hurt somebody and then I'm going to be in trouble. And it's going to ruin my life. And, um, and so that kind of fear that they carry about the, um, the power of their own sex. Yeah. So it's kind of right at that nexus of like, what are the things that they do to, for their own social standing and for their friends and doing things they don't really want to do? 
And it's all kind of tied up in in this, um, you know, what I would more generally think of as a kind of alienation from their own real desire. Yeah. Which is not to hurt anybody. I really, I really believe that, or at least that their own sexual desire, um, you know, that the 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 impulse to like to dominate, hmm. to conquer is is not actually fundamentally a a sexual drive that mm. in a like certainly not in a grown-up human being you know it's like i don't even really think in a teenager it's an expression of fear right an expression of um unfamiliarity and mm. fear i mean i don't know if you've read civilized to death or you know what you know you've i know you listen to the podcast occasionally so you've probably heard me rant about Office. this <laughs> um but yeah, I, I have a very strong sense that our relationship with the natural world and our relationship with our inner nature are just two facets of the same thing. So to the extent that we feel alienated and afraid and hostile toward the natural world, we also are afraid of our inner nature. So as you were saying, these these kids, are they don't know if there's a beast within them mm that's about to burst out and hurt people just as they don't know if there's a grizzly bear on the other side of that hill that's about to come in and fuck things up. And so not knowing how to deal with that grizzly bear is akin to not knowing how to deal with your inner hungers and desires and all that. And if you're in denial of them, as we tend to be, or your impulse is to just eliminate them, there's a bear, kill it. There's a rattlesnake, cut its head off right? Don't step around it. Don't acknowledge its function and its purpose and its meaning in this whole system, uh, just as our own impulses and desires and hungers have purpose and meaning. And yeah, it's... And can really drive us in some of the most beautiful ways. Exactly. And the key is, you know, as you were talking about the Knowles course, teaching people to be prepared and to acknowledge the potential dangers is is valuable. But it's very hard to do that without conveying the message that the world is super dangerous and you have to be careful and you have to be prepared for everything. And, oh, my God, you know, don't ever be alone. Don't ever do anything. I, I kind of feel like that. I, I don't know. I'm talking in circles here. But I feel like um, that's that's the issue here, right? How do you teach people... Um, or, or just encourage people to acknowledge the complexity and nuance of the natural world or of human nature without encouraging them to be alienated from it or afraid of it. Mm -hmm. Because being afraid of it blocks you from interacting with it in a fruitful way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and sometimes it's really, it's, it's like a matter of being caught up in our heads about it. So the grizzly bear is a great example because I have kids out in Yosemite all the time and they are just like convinced that a grizzly bear is going to come running out. And I'm, I'm telling them, I, I wish it were so, <laughs> you know, there are no more grizzly bears, yeah. you know, it's like, and, and if they could, if they could actually feel the, the loss, yeah. if they could really like, um, in an embodied way, feel that, you know, these woods are pretty quiet all told. It's like, it's a lot of, it's a lot of silence around here and, there are no big predators, you know, or very few roaming yeah. around. But then they're they're just thinking, they're remembering the movies that they've seen, and 
yeah. you know, and I have a teacher who um, says this thing I really like, you know, and I, I, I have, I think about it often with, uh, with these guys in this conversation about the sex, you know, we have this saying about, you know, guys thinking with their dicks and that is often presented as, you know, that's the dangerous thing. That's what makes them so dangerous because they're kind of being, they're kind of being guided and they then are subject to these ravenous impulses. And, you know, what this teacher says is if men were really being, you know, really thinking with their dicks, it would be a, a much safer world for her you know the the like the reference to the sex it's like that's the place of the deep knowing and intuition and true desire and where it gets so confused for young guys is that it's like you're not actually thinking with your dick in fact you're like completely checked out from it you're like it's just like a, a an appendage that you are trying to use as if it didn't belong to you to accomplish this totally other social function getting the girl fitting in looking cool um, conquering this acquiring this kind of social standing you know and that's what i hear from these guys all the time i didn't even really want to and it totally jibes with my experience of being a young man it's like doing a lot that i didn't want to do because i was afraid of what it would mean if 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 i didn't right I was afraid of what, not just what it would mean to anybody else, but what I would think of myself if I didn't. So did you not feel um, an urgent desire to connect sexually when you were 15, 16, 17? Oh, I totally felt an urgent desire to connect sexually. You know, the, the form that it took when I actually think about what my early sexual encounters looked like, it's like I wasn't even in the room. I, I did not do any of the like emotional. I just like was not available for any actual intimacy because I was so consumed with performing mm. a kind of um, a kind of role. I wanted to. Right. I so much wanted to be perceived and to perceive myself. I'm gonna think about this. When I when I tried to lose my virginity, when I tried to ditch my virginity at 15 years old, I totally lied to the to the girl I was with about um, being a virgin. Yeah, as if it was some shameful thing. Well, it's like if you start with a lie, I mean, it's it's. It's true to die. I think we get older and then we get better and better, you know, lying to ourselves and lying to the people we sleep with, you know, and then it's all of a sudden, I can't really tell anymore. I don't speak, you know, as myself in the present, but it's like have had that experience, yeah. you know, but it, at 15, it's like it was already done. It was already not going to be a thing. It was already the opposite of, as you say, the the connection hmm. that I actually craved. Right. It's like the possibility of that flew out the window the second I was like, oh, just, yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, sure. Hell of times. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, yeah. Now, you were also a child actor at the time. I was. Did that play into it, that you were so accustomed to playing a role that you're like, oh, it's just another role? 
it probably contributed to um, a particularly intense sense of having a persona yeah. that um, that I wanted to to tend or to guard. You know, it's like right. I didn't identify that strongly with um, with my with my job as an actor, and yet I knew that you know around school. Even kids I didn't know, oh yeah, that's that's Stifler's little brother, you know. It's like I was known, and so like, God forbid, I should both it should become known that you know Stifler's little brother, like uh, you know, couldn't get it up, or like whatever it was, you know. It's like that's the I had a I had another piece of of public personality to defend. Where did you live in Berkeley? In Berkeley, when you're and your brother was an actor. My brother was an actor. He's he's. Um, we share a father. I'm my middle of my father's three. My mother's only. So I, I didn't grow up with either of my siblings. Mm. Um, and uh, my brother's kind of an amazing guy. He he's he lives in L.A. and uh, was an actor for a long time. But he was basically living on his own when he was 13. Mm. He's basically been a self-sufficient and independent being, which because of who he was, did not strike me as uh, as particularly bizarre you know and he was 16 he lived with his 20 year old girlfriend just had his life i didn't think anything of his was know, Harley's just like, a, like that a tough situation at home that he had to get out of i mean our, our father's a tough case but it it was more just that um he was actually an, an independent being you know he he made his own money young through the acting through the acting right and uh could sustain himself and was just having his life. You know, it's like our father was bopping around doing whatever he was doing and mm. having his life. And, um, you know, but now that I work with 16 year olds, yeah. it strikes me as utterly fucking insane. But yeah. you know, he just yeah. was that kind of guy, yeah. he a product of a different, a different time. And, and just, that's how he came in. Do you screen these kids? How do you decide who's in a group? No, we take them all. Really? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, they have to want to be there to some extent. We don't take anybody against their will. I mean, I'm sure parents have their own coercive, Mm -hmm. manipulative means for getting those kids to the parking lot. But we don't take anybody against their will. There's no like getting kidnapped and ending up, you know. It's not like a, you know, called wilderness therapy. You know, it's like I've had kids who who have come from those situations. You know, it's like I was so drunk and then these guys showed up at my room. And uh, next thing I knew, I was like sobering up in a McDonald's in Utah on my way out to, you know, Mm. the to the desert so it's like we don't do that um and we get a range of kids you know from from kids who are in some ways getting in a lot of trouble whose parents feel they really need it who have been locked up or who have been um in substance abuse and rehabilitation programs and then we get kids who are just thriving in their lives um you know getting good grades and well socialized and just have a an urge for something more just have a feeling that there's like something else out there for them and uh really the amazing thing is you get those kids out in the wilderness it is such a leveling effect really oh just people people first of all are not at all what you expect and they're not at all what they expect you know Mm. kids come into that like 
I'm a high achiever or like I'm a fucked up mess. And if you just put everybody together and stop treating anybody like they're so special for getting A's at their private school or like they're so messed up just because they like, you know, got into taking Xanax and ended up in Utah and just like treat everybody with a lot of love and kindness and do the practices that we do. Um, you know, what I have found is that people, people really settle with each other and pretty quickly give up their long-held assumptions about the kind of person. I'm this kind of person. I, I don't like the woods. I'm not that kind of person. I'm not really an outdoors person. It's like, yes, you are. You know, it's like, you don't have to love, you don't have to do this every day of your life, but you, you are an earthling, hmm. you know, it's like... you're you're about it you know it's like the earth's about you and and you're about the earth and you know you're not a you're not a mean person i don't actually believe that really about people i i really think people um want to be really kind with each other it's actually like what feels good they're not even doing it for anybody else's benefit it's just like that is the more pleasurable experience yeah. And, uh, and and once you take kids out of a context where the safe thing to do is to talk shit or the safe thing to do is to, you know, act up or the, you know, whatever it is, man, people just. How do you deal with, I, I'm sure there's a, a balancing act that, that you and the other adults in the group are doing with the kids where you're. You want to let them work things out, but you also don't want anyone to get bullied or hurt or, you know, and you you can see one kid is being very aggressive and, you know, another kid's taking the brunt of that. Like, how do you know when to let that play out and when to intervene? I talk about culture building. Right. You know, and... I think that one of the fundamental notions that we're working with out there is that culture is a much more um, fluid and uh, imprintable set of practices than is often assumed. You know, we come into it feeling like culture is something huge that we are products of, that is the of overwhelming environment in which we function that determines us in in large measure and there are of of course sort of ways to 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 mark the culture that um yeah it's like american culture is is a pretty pretty massive stone you know and and marks us in profound ways but when you get people out there and you really level with them about the fact that we are in an active process and it's a collective process you know i'm all about the transparency with them i'm not really trying to like manipulate them behind the scenes or or pull this little card out and try to get that thing to happen it's like i just want to level with them look y'all this is what we're doing we're out here to have an experience both in our minds and in our nervous systems of what it is like when we come out here and we treat each other really well. I mean, I talk about it with them. Mm. It's like I involve them in that process. And so, you know, someone starts, you know, oh, don't, we don't, we don't want you in our tent. We don't want you in our tent. You know, it's, then it's, 
it's not a thing to let play out, but it's also not to punish or shame them. It's like, hey, let's let's remember like what we are doing here. Mm-hmm. Let's remember we are in a collective or in a collective process. And my experience is that teenagers respond to nothing better than being really leveled with. Hmm. I mean, because like, everybody's lying. God, because everybody's lying to them, and everybody's trying to get them to do something or think something without telling them why or what it is, and they just they smell the bullshit. Mm-hmm. They 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 do not want to be condescended to. They do not want to be manipulated, and 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 you know, I just really want to be transparent with them. It's like for myself. It's like I don't want to be anonymous. Uh, adult program <laughs> leader who's trying to make them have some kind of experience. It's yeah. like, you guys, like, it is it is hurting my feelings that this is happening because the way it feels to me is like we sat and talked about that and then you basically were like, fuck you, bro. Um, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. So now my feelings are hurt. You would be amazed at how... Um, well, 16-year-old boys can respond to a grown-up man just, like, being real with them. Like, that right. hurts my feelings when you do that. Being vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I've just found mm. it to be, if anything, like, a really um, a really good, you know, it's always the little rub in the situation. A little fly in the ointment turns out to be some of the most generative mm. material. Yeah. Because, you know, it also becomes the place where real relationship building happens. You know, pull a kid aside and be like, yo, like, I, you know, I know that you, you know, are like just got off probation for this. And like, you're out here and you're punking this kid. And um, I'm trying to know you for a long time. Like, I want to see you graduate high school. I want to be at your high school graduation. And um, it worries me, you know, like that doing this thing, that taking advantage of your superior position in this little social pack to bully that kid, you know, is not conducive to your long-term thriving and to our getting to know each other over the course of years. And it's like, it's so different than, um, you know, I'm mad at you. I'm going to cut you off. Right. You know. So yeah. that's that's been my style up till now. I'm 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 grateful it's worked, you know. I'll, I'll let you know if I get anything that doesn't respond to that. I taught high school for uh one ill-fated year. Uh. I didn't even make it through the year. And uh it was it was a really uh powerful experience for me because it was so extreme i I was uh, i had two groups one was like 16 and the other 17 i think sophomores and juniors in high school this was in spain and uh my experience was i fucking loved being with those kids i just loved the experience of being in a room with them and as you said being as honest as I could be with them, as transparent as I could be. Um, But I hated the structure around it, right? That I had to impart information and there were tests and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, but it was, it was a very interesting situation because I was hired to replace someone who 
quit at the last minute or didn't, you know, whatever, couldn't come to Spain or whatever it was. They hired me sight unseen because I had a master's degree and was in a PhD program. And it was like two weeks before school started and like, fuck, yeah, you'll do. Right. They just Mm -hmm. plugged me into it. And I didn't need the money. I didn't need the job. I didn't give a shit at all. So I was totally kind of uh, invulnerable to the institution. And the first week of school, 9-11 happened. I was supposed to be teaching U.S. history from the Civil War till today. 9-11 happened like my second day in school or something. I only did Tuesdays and Thursdays. And, uh, And I was like okay, here's what we're going to do. Forget Civil War. We're going to talk about American foreign policy, oil, multinational corporations. We're going to talk about what I want to talk about, what's really going to matter to you, because you're going to remember this for the rest of your life. You're going to remember this day forever. So let's talk about why this happened and what happened and what it might mean. And it was, man, it was great, but the problem was half the kids just couldn't focus. They just, all they wanted to do was play. They wanted to flirt and play and laugh and impress their friends and, and just, you know, and they just couldn't. And, and I, I said to them, like, look, guys, you don't want to come. Don't come. I don't, you, all you're doing is fucking it up for the rest of us, right? So if you don't want to come, don't come. I won't tell them you didn't come. I'll mark you present. I don't give a shit, right? Like I, I talk exactly like this, right? Yeah. You want to go? You want to get me fired? I don't care. I don't need this job. So, some of the people are interested in this. Let us talk. Just shut the fuck up. Listen to your Walkman. Go for a walk. I don't care. <laughs> but it got so frustrating um, that you know they wanted to be there, but they wanted to be disruptive. Teenagers, fucking teenagers, Damn teenagers. Man. But they were so cool because I could see in their eyes, like you're a good dude, you're, and well, you are funny. Like they did shit that cracked me up. But it's like oh, they're just riven by so many competing oh, impulses so much. too. Because like, and I wish I could be in the woods. Kid with them. wanted to like, yeah. Well, that's the thing. I mean, to be working inside of an institution Fuck. where you have those competing requirements and yourself, the girls and the girls. Right, the presence of the girls was driving them nuts. It's true. They were t- constantly trying to impress the girls, and it's like, dude. Well, we get that question all the time. Yes, why don't you, you imagine? Girls? Yeah, yeah, it's like, why, why just the boys? You know, why just the boys? And then, and then we quickly get questions about, you know, well, how do you decide? And the truth is, um, we've never had it come up, and we would probably take anybody, um, however they identified, if they were very clear with us like i want to do this i want to be there this is for me truth is not there to police the boundaries Mm. certainly not there to reinforce the existing gender binary but there is something so real about the way that boys perform you know to return as you're saying it's like that makes it so hard to um, be their authentic selves. Yeah. Like even if their authentic self was, I am so interested in what this guy is talking about right now. So I really want to know about this. But I'll look like a dweeb. But if I'll I look like it. a dweeb. Yeah. I just, yeah. I, I can't miss this opportunity to say something funny just right. in case it might get me a 
point <laughs> on some imaginary you know, i don't even know with who yeah. for what but, yeah so you know there there's something about the isolation yeah um you know yeah so following up on this question of gender and all that do you you must have had situations where um you have kids who are gay maybe out maybe not out like how how has that have someone come out around the fire you know do you, i mean i imagine you're trying to create a space of safety for that to happen if if it wants to yeah um we have had kids who are out and we actually have had kids who have come out around the fire amazingly um like as young as like in middle school and that's really where it blows my mind because i mean i just remember what middle school was like for me and so you know that's that's where i feel like wow this is a this is this is meaningful work i i am so grateful that i get to um, hold a space where a, a 12 year old you know can speak that and be received in a good way and it has a lot to do with the culture of the schools that they are part of and those mm. happen to be the schools that want to work with us and right. you know it's all uh endogenously related you know i'm always amazed by just something i track the levels of and this this actually has nothing to do with with kids being queer or not but um the levels of physical affection that people show each other as um as our as our threads to this let's call it just the default front country world um dissolve a little bit you know and they're not explicitly related so far as i don't think that guys liking to lean on each other or hug each other has anything to do with necessarily um, sexual desire or being queer. It's just to say there is like a a softening. Mm. I, I do believe that men hold themselves in their bodies, just like hold physically on their own, just like in their musculature, in their skeletal system, as well as in the ways that they relate to other men, like a a deep and permeating kind of um, homophobia that is like a a a residue of of our history that we are in the process of unweaving and untangling ourselves from. And it's um, it's just really a beautiful thing to I just track it in in the way people are with each other the ways they help each other, the ways they make physical contact with each other um, that doesn't have anything underlying it. You know, I'm yeah. certainly not saying like it's because then we go out to this. It's like, it's not like that, but it's just, there's like a, a softening around. Um, I think it actually is like the healing up of the residual homophobia. I was thinking when you said that homophobia, I don't know why I've never thought of this before, but homo means same, right? So homophobia is uh, a fear or, uh, of the same. And there is a self-hatred embedded in all homophobia, mm. right? If, I, if I'm repulsed by men's bodies, that includes mine. 
I think that's beautifully right. observed. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's part of, it's part of the, um, you know, and it kind of all weaves back into this notion that like men, you know, then, then in that light, you can really see the connection between, um, you know, the way men hold their own sex as something sort of, um, I don't want to say cheap, but not beautiful. You know, something that lies somewhere on the spectrum of like dangerous to like a, you know, a weapon. Um, yeah, or disgusting. And therefore, any woman who enjoys it is herself disgusting. Yeah, or, or any woman who would, you know, or even that, that like having sex is inherently about, uh, is, a, is a conquering act because right. you have like done it to somebody. Right. You have foisted this, um, this, you know, if we say disgusting, this, this something unbeautiful, something unlovely upon someone else. Right. Right. Yeah. I think it's really well observed. I, uh, I don't know if you read the New York times, but last Sunday, too much. Do you, did you see the front? There was a, last Sunday's times, um, in the front of, I don't know what section it was, travel maybe, there was a story about a woman in Washington State who um, teaches people survival skills. Links. Yes. Did you see that article? I did. It was interesting. I So when I saw it, I want to hear what you think about it. Let me just throw this out. When I saw that, I thought, oh, no, here we go. Another one of these, you know, big city journalist goes out and spends a few days in the woods and misses her cell phone and stinks and says, fuck that. This is silly. A bunch of freaky hippies out here. I found this article to be quite well done and respectful and kind. And it was written by a woman. I don't remember her name, but um, I'd like to get her a copy of Civilized to Death. I keep thinking that and then forgetting. Um, But uh, what struck me was how surprised she was i remember her her saying something like you know i like most people thought that these people who go out into the woods to live are trying to get away from society when what i found is they're trying to find society they're trying to find community they're building they're out in the woods to find each other to take care of each other and that the real isolation is not happening among the people out in the woods. It's happening in the cities. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was so humble of her to recognize that, you know, um, what did you think of it? Well, I, I first, you know, really love that point. And I think it's more or less what I'm saying about, about culture building. Exactly. You know, That's that, when you said that phrase, that was what sprang into my mind. You know, it's, it's so, and it's so disempowering to imagine that, um, that we are simply subjects, you know, conscripts of the culture that we were born into and starting to be able to reimagine ourselves at different scales of community. And that we have control. We can shape that community. Yeah. You know? And, and as what you're doing and what she talked about and what I talk about in my work is shape that community around the true nature of the species, mm. not around corporations or automobiles or infrastructure, whatever you've been given, right? Look in yourself and in each other. That's where you're going to find the real blueprint. 
And so much of the community and the culture that we um, aspire to and yearn for comes out of certain kinds of practices. It's like, we're all here for a certain amount of time doing something. So really the question is like, well, what are you doing with your time? I mean, how, just how do you spend it? How do you fill up a day? You know, and then what is the quality of that experience? And when you take those units of experience and concentrate them over time in many people, then what does it foster? So it's not like the like a community or a certain kind of culture is not sort of a, an abstract expression of a set of principles. It's the it's the way that people are together that arises, I would say, out of what people have to do day in and day out to to take care of themselves, to be with each other. And that's where, you know, say, why would you, in a time of supermarkets, work so hard to be out there like collecting little bits of muscle, uh, you know, and clams and you know, making pemmican and drying out berries and walking around, like harvesting little bits of food, you know, so much work for so few calories. You know, why? What is the point? Well, it's like, because then that's what you did with the day. Mm. Because there is a quality of experience that comes from looking that closely at the earth mm. uh, you like you learn something right. it's like i don't know if you've ever like been out in the mountains in the summer and and just been looking for wild strawberries and gooseberries it's like the way it absorbs your attention the way you can spend hours just in the berry bushes it's not for the berries they are the effect Right. You know, they're they're just they're the berry on top, right. <laughs> you know. But like the real meat of the matter is like oh, that's what I did today. That's how I saw the world today. That's how I felt. That's how quiet my mind was today. Mm. That's how that's how many times I felt a little spark of joy at like, oh look another one. Like, oh look another one. That's how precise my observation got today where I could tell that even though those two berries look almost the same color, that one's ripe and that one's not. I mean, it's like, it's just, how are we spending our time? And the state of consciousness that's created by that kind of attention is the state of consciousness that every world spiritual discipline is trying to teach us to find right i mean isn't that where we're all trying to go i i find i i, I know this is my bias and i know people are probably nodding and going here he goes again but it just feels to me like like we aspire all our forward progress is trying to get home everything is trying to go where we came from right? Like we've been lost and we're just trying to get home, right? And like that consciousness that you talked about walking around, like there's a berry, there's, it made me think when I was about a year ago, I was in Hawaii uh, with a bow and arrow hunting pigs. It's the first time I've ever hunted anything cool. in my life, right? I'm out there with my buddy Kyle and some other people and 
And I turns out I was the first one to shoot a pig. I'd never shot anything. I'd never killed anything bigger than a salmon uh, in my life. And that it was a very interesting experience and primarily because of the state of consciousness that it put me into that attention. And after that first day, I said, okay, like I'm probably not going to shoot anything else. I've had that experience. I, and I don't really want to be with the group anymore. I just want to go off by myself and walk around because it felt so cleansing to just walk around quietly and slowly, I found myself moving at the pace of cattle because there were cows in these fields. And that sort of increasing awareness of which way the wind was blowing and what sounds there were and the, the shape of the land and where the pigs tend to go down in these gullies. And I found that after a day or two, I knew where they were. And I could just stand there. I had this experience of standing on the crest of this gully and I just knew they were going to come up this gully. And next thing I hear some grunting and then some pig and I cocked a, uh, what's called knocked the arrow and it's a compound bow. So you can like hold it back for a while, you know, and I was holding it and I was focused on this um, trail coming up the other side where I knew they were going to go. And I was just standing there maybe 15 feet away. So easy shot. And they came up one after another, little piglets, and I and they just I, I let I let them go. But I felt like I have life and death right here in my fingertips, and I was waiting for a big one because I didn't want to shoot a little one because I shot like a yearling the first, and I was like I don't want to kill something small if it's big. I guess whatever. Um, but then there wasn't a big one. It it was just the little ones. But. Uh, yeah, I don't know why I'm how, telling how, this story. So here's my here's my question. Yeah. How how do you think you knew? Well, I think I think we have thousands of generations of training embedded within us, right? And I think that the reason we yearn, the reason we do meditation or float tanks or um you know, anything that focuses the mind is that we yearn for that state of consciousness in which our mind is focused because it feels so good. And I think the reason it feels so good is that that was the default state of consciousness for, for our ancestors until very recently. So this state of constant distraction is like eating shitty food. Like that didn't happen until recently. Right. Like those berries that you're gathering, that's what we ate. That's what our ancestors ate. Mm -hmm. So. So I, I think we yearn for it because I think our ancestors were virt were all focused like that. Right. That whether they were hunting or gathering or whatever they were doing, that state of acute attention to the surroundings was not stressful. That was the resting state. And I think when we feel it, which you're helping these kids feel, it doesn't surprise me that it feels familiar to them, mm -hmm. like a dream or something, you know, because I think that is the state. It's similar to my friend Stanley Krippner talks about how, um, you know, placebo is super important, right? And it's very powerful and it confounds scientific investigators because they don't know how to quantify it and how to predict it and all that. And Stanley's point is, 
in shamanic societies, placebo is so important that it would have been that that susceptibility to placebo effect would have been selected for in evolution. Because if you heal yourself because of some ritual or rite or belief, you're going to survive and you're going to have more kids and it's going to have that evolutionary Darwinian effect. It's very scientific. It's actually the out, the truly yeah. outcome oriented right right you know evidence makes perfect sense like and we're losing it because it's not selected for now right but it's still very present in us so i guess it's like that i feel like this yearning for acute attention to the world that you're in is our natural state and we're like we're frustrated you know where it's like a vitamin deficiency well, I, I love I love this um, this mention of of the placebo. It certainly um, yeah it struck me for a long time in our health and uh, you know in our in our thinking about medicine that somehow trying to isolate out the placebo effect um, really was uh, was contraindicated. Yeah, you know it's like it's like we're going for the healing, right? Like that's what we're, that's what we're working for. Right. Um, and I actually think it applies to, to things well beyond medicine as well, Mm. you know, to the difference. Some time ago I started making a distinction for myself and I share this with, with the young guys between, you know, a true thought and a useful thought. Mm. You know, so you say, well, does does a medicine truly work? You know, well, I don't know. You know, I mean, how much is 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 the is the psycho, is the is the is the pharmacological effect, and and how much of it is psychological? And um, in the same way, you could try to determine till the cows come home, sort of like, well, what's the real, what's the real true reason why I feel say at, at peace in a resting state, or why does it feel good? To, to do a certain thing. And I have become uh, infinitely more interested in the useful thoughts. Mm. That is like, what, what do I, what is the experience that I want to have? And what are the kinds of thoughts associated with having that kind of an experience? So I, I think about this, um, for example, in the context of like, I don't know if the trees can hear our thoughts. I, I I don't know, you know, it seems to be some scientific basis for thinking that the, the plants hear us, that they are psychic. You know, you've seen those experiments where, you know, they, they, they put through the speaker some horrible messaging to the plants and they wilt or they, you know, send them loving thoughts or, you know, these experiments with the, with the molecular structure of water, etc. So there does seem to be some scientific basis, but say, I don't know. I mean, maybe they can, maybe they can't. But what does it do to your experience of walking in the forest if you presume that the thought that the that the trees can hear your thoughts? I have a teacher who's a, a tracker. John Stokes is a is a is a master tracker. He was originally trained up by Aboriginal guys who are. I mean, everybody's got a tracking lineage, but but the Aboriginal guys in Australia are maybe maybe the best, you know. And and the tracking is all about paying attention paying such good attention as as you were just describing tracking those pigs and he says you know the animals are psychic he says the animals can absolutely hear your thoughts so, i don't know if that's true 
I mean, but what does it do for your experience of walking in the woods? What does it do for your experience of, you know, hunting, of hunting? What does it, you know, what is the quality of your, of your life? How has it changed by presuming that, that the animals can hear you, that mm. the trees can hear you, that the earth can feel you? Yeah. You know, it's like, then it's like, I don't know, if you, if you want to later get into a field of, uh, you know, rigorous scientific study and sort of track whether there's research, researchable questions and hypotheses about it, like, by all means. But, um, but meanwhile, it's like, what are we going for? It's like, if the placebo heals, then be healed. Right. You know, and if the thought about the forest hearing you gives you a, a sense of hyper focus and deep connection then like, man, presume that the forest hears you. That's how, that's at least how I I have been rolling. Yeah. And, and I think it's funny because it sounds, how to say this? It's, I think to, to normal sort of conventional thinking people, that sounds, um, uh, what's the word? I, I don't know, like presumptuous, right? Like you can believe this just because it's useful. But I'm at a point in my life where that sounds humble to me. It sounds like someone is saying, my immediate, exp- I'm, I am going to try to... Um, make my belief system adapt to my experiences rather than I'm going to force my experiences to adapt to my belief system. Thanks right? for hearing it like that. Yes. I, and I think that's where we are. Like in, in medicine's a perfect example. If, if we're at a point now where if doctors, researchers don't understand the mechanism for something, they discard it. Right, because of the pressures of you know rigorous testing and replication, and who's funding the research, and we can get into lots of reasons that that's the way it's shaped. But the fact is that nobody understood how aspirin stopped pain until the 1970s, right? Which comes from willow bark, mm-hmm. right? A, a silicetic acid or something. Native Americans have been using it forever. They knew you chew on the bark of the willow tree; it makes your tooth pain go away. Nobody knew how, nobody knew why. I'm sure they had stories around it, you know, whatever. But being subservient to a mechanistic understanding of things before you'll allow it to take place in your life impoverishes your life. Ah, very well said. Yeah. I don't know. I was thinking something else along those lines, but... Well, and... and Oh, oh, sorry. No, 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 please. Uh, There's this amazing essay, which I I try to recommend every time it comes up... uh, it's in a book called Lives of a Cell and by Lewis Thomas, who's written in the early 70s. He was the head of oncology at Sloan Kettering Memorial uh, in New York. Big research hospital, right? He retired from that job, top, top physician, researcher, and he wrote this book of essays, which would have gotten him fired, basically, if he'd written it when he was still working there. And it's about Earth as a cell and how sort of the Gaia hypothesis and all that. But in one of the, I think it's the first chapter, he talks about how every culture around the world has folk remedies for warts, 
right? So like in, I think in Ireland, you cut a potato in half and you rub, rub half of it on the wart while the other's on your head or something, and then you bury it and whatever. There are, there are all these, you know, involving potatoes and garlic and, you know, walking backwards for a day, whatever it is. And they work. Nobody knows how they work, but they work, right? And doctors just laugh at it and say, yeah, people are weird, right? But as an oncologist, he's saying, no, what's happening here? You're doing some sort of ritual. You're engaging some sort of a belief system, which triggers the immune system to distinguish wart cells from non-wart cells. And generally overnight, while you're sleeping, it, your immune system eliminates the wart cells without damaging any of the surrounding tissue, no negative consequences whatsoever. How is oncology not totally focused on this? Instead of poisoning the body with radiation and chemicals, trying to kill the tumor and destroying the rest of the body in the process. How are we not? We, there's a doorway to exactly where we're trying to go. And it's obvious to us. And we laugh at it and continue like pounding at the wall when there's a door right there. It's amazing. Anyway, that's, that's, my, that's what always comes to mind when we're talking about this being a slave to understanding the mechanism, you know. Well, it's it's like we have um, we have defined our human being intelligence, the kind of intelligence that we have made so much of and elevated to a rather extraordinary position. I mean, I don't just mean we have we have elevated it and and praise it, although we do that, but we have actually refined a certain kind of intelligence, a certain kind of investigative prowess, a certain ability. I mean, it's amazing that they have a theory of the origin of the universe and a mathematics that can detect that it is, you know, expanding. Wow, that's cool stuff that, that, that the mind worked that well, but we have really done it um, quite in uh, in opposition to other forms of intelligence. We have had to presume the sort of non-intelligence of other systems, of other mm. ways of knowing. I we, feel, we have to presume that fucking trees don't have intelligence in order to cut them down. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I, have, I have sometimes thought, you know, I mean, I'm, a, I'm an academic in recovery, you know, I am, I am, I am recovering from a, a, you know, training to know things and argue the truth of my way of seeing things against other ways of seeing things, and to be mightily offended by other people's, you know, seemingly minor. This anthropologist is completely off base, and thing. You know, it's like people who, you know, more or less think the same thing, yeah. want the same things oh. for the world. And um, tell me about it. You know, we. We, um, you know, we got to find ourselves back to really honoring the, the, the intelligence of other systems. Yeah, it's like to be smart like that, you know, to know that there are intelligences at work that are just quite simply very different and, and sometimes far greater than our own. Fucking humility, right? It all oh. comes down to humility. Yeah. And I guess... Maybe that's also part of what's happening in those groups of young men that you're with is maybe what some of them are recognizing is that only through their own humility are they truly part of the group. And if they're not part of the group, then they're in danger. Because, again, back to our ancestors, mm -hmm. right? 
you're either part of the group or you're dead. Hmm. You know, that's why social exclusion is so painful for us. Um, yeah. How do you how do you make sense of of the, you know, the ways that are like, do you, do you think about is our there's like a, a biological imperative that is very old. And how do you make sense of its interaction with the kind of present state of our consciousness? If that makes sense as a question, like, is our, when you talk about our ancestors kind of acting upon us or these things that feel good because they are familiar to us in some way, I'm just curious how you see sort of the relationship of our, our present our present state of consciousness? Uh, well, I'm not sure, you know, we'd have to define what you mean by our and what you mean by state of consciousness, right? Fair. Um, but I, I feel like we are, I feel like there's a, the way I envision it in my head, I mean, I know there, there are ways to talk about it in terms of genetics, uh, you know, that experiences it turns out Lamarck wasn't wrong he's been ridiculed you know for Lamarck basically argued that the experience of an animal can be imprinted in its DNA what DNA wasn't understood at that point but is somehow carried forward to other generations and um after like sort of a strict Darwinian view Lamarck was totally trashed as you say, academics are ruthless about anyone who disagrees with them or offers a different view. Now it turns out that Lamarck wasn't wrong, that if your great-great-grandfather experienced famine, you're more likely to be obese, even if, even if you were adopted. Or you, you have absolutely no cultural, familial connection. Somehow his experience of famine is imprinted in your being in such a way that you're more likely to accumulate body fat, wow. you know, things like that. And they've shown this in, in rats and mice as well. Uh, trauma, you know, uh, sort of echoes down the generations in ways that no one has been able to explain, but we can see its effects, mm -hmm. you know, just like the wind is bending the tree, but you don't see the wind. Um, so I feel like there are, uh, there's a trajectory of of our species that we were sort of we're going on a trajectory and we're veering because there's like a crosswind it's sort of pushing us off track and we experience that as trauma so we experience that um as a panic and anxiety uh you know a lot of fear because we aren't home we aren't where we like you said you know, I was thinking earlier, you're talking about the Knowles thing, and we talked about nature being presented as dangerous. It is dangerous, but so is suburbia, right? Like we always talk about, when I have these conversations with people and they say, oh, but you know, if you fell and broke your leg as a hunter-gatherer, you're fucked, man. Like you get you get scratched, you get an infection, you, you get bit by a snake. There's no anti-venom. Like, yeah, that's all true. You know what else is true? Fucking heart attacks, diabetes, all sorts of transmissible diseases that we suffer from, diseases of civilization that they didn't have at all. There's no fucking smallpox among hunter-gatherers, no tuberculosis, no diabetes, no heart disease, no auto accidents, mm -hmm. right? No, very little, to, to no suicide. The only suicide that's encountered among hunter-gatherers is generally people who are old and just like, okay, I don't want to hold you back. I'm out, right? 
compare that to the way we deal with people who are no longer able to keep up, right? Plug them into machines, send them off to an institution somewhere and forget about them. Anyway, my point is that um, home is where you know how shit works. And our species generally was at home in the environment that we now consider to be dangerous, Mm -hmm. you know? I don't know. I'm not answering your question. No, I'm just no, going around no, in circles. No, no, that's actually very helpful. But I, I do feel like there is, you know, in, in Civilized to Death, it, I, at the end, what I tried to say was that one of the potential futures I see for our species is that we are in this hero's journey that Joseph Campbell described, you know, where the character goes out and has a lot of experiences and faces challenges and learns things and then takes that knowledge and goes home with it. And so you go home, but it's different now because now you know shit that you didn't know when you left. And I feel like that's the trajectory of our species that we're, we're turning toward home. And we see that in things like, you know, paleo diet in, uh, even something like CrossFit, where it's like, no, functional. Do things that the human body's made to do, right? Squat toilets, you know, all sorts of from trivial stupidity to things that are actually profoundly important, like the work you're doing, where like, oh, these kids, they're facing challenges. Life's difficult. They're, they're, they're swimming in bullshit. What would happen if we take them out of that and put them in an environment that, that like, the key fits the lock, right? They're made for this Mm -hmm. and they don't even know it. But Mm -hmm. once they're out there, they're like, why does it feel so fucking good to sit by a fire with people that you spent the day with? Why is that so relaxing? Why is it easier to tell the truth here than it is back home? Right? Totally. Yeah. Totally. That shit makes sense to me. That's our, our tagline is you belong here. Right. And it's like, it is self-evident, but requires you know, quite a lot of evidence sometimes to, <laughs> to, to really feel that it is so. Yeah, it's hard to see the, the obvious sometimes. Eli, thank you for doing this, brother. Oh, thank you so much. You've been talking a long time. I feel like between, you know, me and Anya, we've, we've probably uh, taken a few pints of blood from you. Well, let's, let's keep talking for a long time. Yeah, I'd like to. Thank you. Uh, website where people can learn more about your, your work? Backtoearth.org. Check us out. All right. Sweet. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, Mom. Uh, tell people what they can order from the garage. Okay. In our cottage garage, we have lots and lots of T-shirts. <clears throat> Sex at Dawn, Civilized to Death, Vanthropology, Tangentially Speaking, Paleo Modern, and Talking Out of My Ass. <laughs> She didn't like saying that last one. Then we now have some new things added. We've got beer cozies or koozies or whatever they're called. Oh, civilized to death. They're all civilized to death. We have stickers and car decals, right? Yes. Okay. There you have it. That's Julie, my mom. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say You're gonna die one day For example, I could kiss you Just
just because I want to And what's the difference if you turn away I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say to the ground. 